For June 13th, 2011, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 154. All my bumblebees are drowned. Welcome to the Overthinking It podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. From the best coast, home of the film industry... I'm Matthew Rather here with the uh, the people on the least coast, home of the theater industry. And- <laughs> <laughs> oh, Matthew, that you would give us such disrespect. Yeah. Oh, anyway, that's me being theatrical. <laughs> I, accompany, I accompany my disrespect with a hail of gunfire. <laughs> Why does it have to be so much fighting on this podcast? <laughs> Why can't we all just get along in this musical? Yeah. <laughs> I'll say, so, you know, you my, know my theater I, impression, I'm, I'm just aiding these guys dressed in a black body stocking. So you can't hear me, but I'm, I'm integral to their production. <laughs> I, <laughs> he's playing the soul. He's playing the soul of our philosophy. I, uh, <laughs> I actually I downloaded um, off Amazon MP3 the uh, the soundtrack to Bloody Bloody Andrew Jackson this week, and the first wow. the first track on that is um, uh, it's called Populism Yeah Yeah, and so I've had Populism Yeah Yeah Populism in my head all uh, which all- we can talk about that more, but that was like sort of the high point of the music of that show and kind of went downhill. It from was, there. Yeah, it was. I, I there isn't anything quite as memorable on that. On that, uh, on the music side of it, no, but the show itself, yeah. Uh, and I didn't short. being being out here on the best coast. I didn't get to. Uh, I didn't get to see the show. Yeah, how's a coast doing for you, huh? Yeah, no, you know, you, you, you're, see you're, the shows, huh? You're too busy looking into a mirror and making kissy faces to see. It. Sorry, what? I didn't. I didn't hear what you said. <laughs> I was too busy looking into this mirror and making kissy faces. Now well, you're just um, turning me off. So it's uh, on uh, on theater's biggest night all night. Uh, night of the, <laughs> <laughs> the night of the Tony Awards. We um, we we pause to ask a question. What is your favorite movie about theater? <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> so uh, question of the week: favorite movie depicting the life theatrical. Uh, Peter Fenzel, thank you very much for valiantly holding down the fort and preventing globo-thermonuclear war uh, while I was in a uh, submarine <laughs> underground playing Six Degrees of Matthew Rather and, um, and uh, hanging out with, with my candidate for worst actress uh, in any film. Um, who, who turns into ice crystal? <laughs> Thank you, Matt. It was a trifle. It, yes. was, <laughs> it was. You made it. You you was. made it look like a trifle. You made you made this thing that I agonize over all week look look so easy, and made me think perhaps I should not agonize over it in quite the way that I did. <laughs> As the squirrels and the tree chops dance from nut to nut, so thus our mouths were full with wisdom <laughs> and with nuts. So there you go. <laughs> you get a little bit of. A a uh, little bit of, sh- of wit, a little bit of witticism that doesn't quite count as wit because it doesn't make sense. Anyway, um, okay, so best movie or favorite movie that it depicts the theater. Um, and I, I like to say that I have something to do with the suggestion of this question because I just watched Topsy Turvy, which is a two-hour and 40-minute movie that feels a lot longer. It's about Gilbert and Sullivan. Uh, <laughs> now, don't get me wrong. If you enjoy filmic portrayals of Gilbert and Sullivan, then, like, by all means, this is like – this is like you're the like, premiere, wow, I didn't know. Yeah. yeah, This is like when you find Rule 34 of your favorite thing. And right? it's um, – it's, uh, yeah, exactly. It's, uh, it has Jim Broadbent in it, right? And uh, I forget who, who, um, uh, who the other one is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the guy from Moulin Rouge, and it's uh, that's Jim whatever. Bradman, and I forget oh, the other Jim guy, John Leguizamo, yeah. of course. Oh, no. <laughs> exactly. So the other guy. <laughs> if, if a movie seems intolerably long, I assume it's got Leguizamo in it. Yeah, it's uh, but, so it's it's two hours forty five, but it it takes its time. It does well. It's it's uh, it, you get the sense that the people are who make it are afraid, as all people who make Gilbert and Sullivan are, are afraid that the thing that they love is going to get sucked into the sort of entropic oblivion of the future. And as such, like the movie goes to great pains to 
document what like a rehearsal at a Gilbert and Sullivan like company rehearsal would look like, like how they deal with all sorts of little logistical problems, like them giving notes, like them for like rehearsing their different shows and workshopping things. So there are a lot of scenes that don't really advance the story, but that you get the sense are there because they sort of want you to look at them and they're all beautiful. I mean, it's, it's when it's Oscars for makeup and costume design, I think uh, it totally deserved them because it's, it's gorgeous movie, uh, but it's just a little slow. And also I have a problem. I don't know if you guys have this problem where I can't understand British accents. Like, like sometimes when a movie gets going, <laughs> people are talking like really fast in a British accent and not like a, a sort of uh, like a high, like King's English British accent or Queen's English British accent, but somebody who's like a little more garrulous. Like I have a little bit of trouble following what they're talking about. Cool. Uh, What's going to be in the movie? Yeah. So Beatles movies, for example. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> when uh, I actually was referring to the last night, I was like, whenever they're speaking with those Lilliputian accents, I can't understand them. <laughs> <laughs> but I, <laughs> Liverpoolian, <laughs> but that's my, it's on me. That's my fault. That's not the British's fault. But anyway, the thing that uh, one. Thing that, <laughs> so Tim, one of the things that I Tim, <laughs> we call you to account for your whole for your all your countrymen for all your unintelligible countrymen. Leave a comment just, on the show notes about your unintelligible <laughs> about your unintelligibility. I, and Tim is fine. He never gets like oh. Um, okay. They're in the apple of pears. Bit of bother with the mistress. Yeah, and I mean there'll be other examples of this that I won't get into. But actually, when I think about portrayals of the theater that I really like, they really have to capture, I think, the sense of desperation that you need to have and like sort of personal sort of frenzy that you need to have to be wanting to be involved in the theater. Um, because it's, you know, I mean, I, I am involved in the theater and like, you know, improvisational comedic performance on a regular basis and you have to be a little crazy and it has to come from, it's a very, the difference between the theater and the movies is that, you know, you perform the theater in the place and most theater that's done is not the Tonys, right? It's not like fancy Broadway theater. Most theater that's done is like small stuff, you know, with students or uh, in front of community groups and, and is not have that sort of sense of polish that totally allows you to separate yourself from the reality of the people performing it. Uh, and in that mindset, I will say that my favorite movie that depicts the theater is the much underrated uh, film Hamlet 2, starring uh, Steve Coogan, who actually has a new movie coming out called The Trip pretty soon, which I'm pretty excited for. Steve Coogan is absolutely freaking hilarious. Uh, I don't know if you've seen Steve, him in any of his stuff. He's in stuff like Tropic Thunder and like 24-hour party people, but like you don't, you don't necessarily uh, catch him unless you he also, run into him. He has, a, he has a great YouTube video, I think it's him, where he's doing... Uh, a, a competition with uh, another actor, a colleague of his, as to who can do the best Michael Caine impression. <laughs> they, they, like, they take Michael Caine through the, just through the whole course of his career, because apparently the accent has changed uh, over the course of time and gotten more... I think he sounds these days more like he has a cold, you know, uh, than, he, than he did when he was a young actor. And so it's, uh, it's great. If you, if you um, uh, Google Michael Caine impersonation, you'll find it. Yeah. So, so the, the story of Hamlet too is that he's a high school is like a high school theater director, right? He doesn't get paid much, um, and what he does is he like has the students perform like scenes from movies that he really likes. Like he has to perform. I forget what movies it is, but it's like it's like it's the kind of stuff you expect to see where they they have certain properties that they really enjoy and certain performances that they really want to see that they trot the students through, and it doesn't really have a lot of artistic immediacy, and the students don't really understand why they're doing it. This is like oh, it's a random musical review of songs from different Broadway shows that I have to perform in. Now, granted, some of those are good, but some of them are not so good, and when it's not explained to the students why you're doing it, it gets a little confusing. So he he is sort of forced out. Right of the, of the department, and he he wants he decides he wants to put on like an original work uh, for the first time, and this monstrosity of an original work through various twists and turns arises is Hamlet Two, which is all about like his relationship with his father and like like literally like sort of abuse scenarios, and Jesus is there, and it was mismarketed because it was marketed as like wacky theater comedy where like he sings this rock me sexy Jesus song, and everyone's like oh this is so irreverent, and then nobody saw it. Um, but really, it's a it's a sort of psychodrama that's very funny about this guy's sort of like particular you know strange madness as he like walks around his uh, kimono as he gets more and more artistic and his life wife his wife more earnestly and earnestly leaves him, um, which is accelerates in its velocity. I think at one point she's traveling so far away from him that light can't travel from her back to him. 
uh, um, fast enough for him to see it, which is actually technically impossible. So yeah. there you go. <laughs> eventually, eventually he'll see it. There may be oh, some gravitational yeah. lensing thing. Not before the end of the movie, because it is not as is blissfully not as it does not drag as long as Topsy Turvy. So I'll say Hamlet too, and I'll recommend <laughs> that people see it if they haven't seen it, because I think it really captures a lot of why people do theater and how they do theater in a way that's funny uh, and, and kind of acknowledges the absurdity of it and also the love and the, the urges that, that drive it forward. Pete, if you have runner-ups, uh, hold on to them because we'll do a round of we'll do a round of runner-ups after everyone's answered because I think we all have a lot of answers to this question. Okay, sounds uh, good. Mark Lee is next in the alphabet. Mark Lee, our engineer and producer for last week's show. Thank you for engineering and producing while I was off in my submarine. No problem, Matthew. Rather, it was my pleasure to be the engineer. I might just do. Uh, let's see how much of this podcast I can sing in honor of the Tony. <laughs> Let's see how much of this... Okay, I'm not actually going to do that. Okay, my favorite depiction of <laughs> the theater... Soft. My favorite predict, predict, prediction depiction of the theater on screen is a little Woody Allen movie from 1994 called Bullets Over Broadway. Have you guys seen this? Oh, yeah. Yes. Don't speak. Winner. I don't... I, don't um, I didn't know how popular this was at the time. I, I think I just happened to see it some way and uh, somehow and had no expectations for it at all and loved it, thought it was hilarious. And here's the, the, the best thing that... And it's been a long time since I've seen it. And, and But I do recall... And correct me if I'm wrong. I do recall that the movie's a plot that is sort of you know the uh, the john cusack character struggling to produce his play with the help of a knucklehead seemingly knuckleheaded mobster who actually helps actually actually writes the play that a plot really dovetail dovetails really well with the b plot of this is a show that they're putting on like and that's sort of like the genius of it it all sort of the both of them sort of they run parallel and they all diverge uh, converge at the end does this sound familiar to you guys yeah that's what the movie was about Great, because then that makes a point that allows me to that allows me to make uh, to take a brief little detour in, into uh, another sort of example of a creative work inside of another creative work. Um, that is the movie Super Eight, which I just saw this weekend, which we may or may not get uh, be able to talk about more later because I think I was the only one who saw it. But to me, like that that struck me as an example of a creative work inside of another creative work, which you know, which had some interesting, you know, wrapped uh, in a mystery, <clears throat> shrouded in an enigma. <laughs> And all inside of a kind, of a, box. So, kind of a mysteriously enchilada thing on the outside. Yeah, so uh, that's an example chips, of chips where, are where free. dinner extra. <laughs> uh, that's a that's a deep cut. That's a deep cut. <laughs> uh, so anyway, that's an example of where uh, you know the creative work inside of it doesn't really fit as well with uh, the, the its container, right? Um, and that's just a reminder of how hard that is to do uh, effectively. And Bolts Over Broadway did that really well. So props to that. Thanks, Woody Allen. Uh, and thank you. Hey, anyone seen Woody Allen's latest? Anyone seen Midnight in Paris? And a deafening silence. I saw it. I, <laughs> I, I liked it a lot, but maybe we'll talk, talk about it later. Uh, Dave Schechner, you are next in the alphabet. Hello! Sorry, Dr. Schechner. Imitating what I imagined all uh, theater patrons to be like. Hello! Just old British <laughs> Dave, ladies. don't patronize me. If only there is a subterranean submarine every week, Matt. Um, so, uh, okay, so I, I'm, I'm, again, split on this debate as I'm split on most of our debates um, in that I don't really know much about culture or anything like that unless it involves bacteria. Uh, and even then... <laughs> I'm, I'm mostly just winging it. Uh, and so, you know, the part of me that proudly displays his Yale diploma uh, in his office uh, wants to say that the answer to this question is Synecdoche, New York. But, um, but the rest of me who's oh, actually a scientist... One. I didn't even think of that. That's a good one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, no, it would it's, be, a good, it's a good choice. It's pretentious trife. Pretentious exactly. Trife. exactly. <laughs> and, and the thing is, but it would be an even better football. choice if I had seen said movie, which I have not. Um, I so saw it. It's pretentious tripe. Okay, great. Cool. Thank you. Uh, Did well, I mention this pretentious tripe? This pretentious tripe. Go on. If, if you say it enough with slight variations, people are just going to think it's minimalist music that you're making, which is, you know, Come out tripe. to show you. Come out 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 to show you. Anyone? That was a, that was a little Steve Rice joke for you. Thank you. I, I went to camp with his kid, by the way. We're Facebook friends. Ezra Reich, baby, tune in. Bobby, Bobby this is Reich. It. This is your night, Ezra. <laughs> little Bobby Reich. 
he performed the, his father's piece. Come out to show you. 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 You know, people listening at home, uh, this has been edited down. The original version, Matt and I did that for 15 minutes straight. <laughs> Good Slightly. lord, it was boring. <laughs> it, was the, it, was the, it was the abridged version of the Stephen Ray. Slightly out uh, of phase with one another in the left and right channels. Uh, but what does that mean, Matt? <laughs> what does that mean? Um, okay, so my actual answer to this is the uh, – I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to break a little bit with the actual formality of the question. And uh, my answer will be um, the 11th episode from the first season of Disney's DuckTales. The episode <laughs> Much Ado About Scrooge, which I have seen, unlike um, <laughs> on, on Synecdoche, New York. This is the one where I, I forget exactly how it is that they end up on this island uh, near Scotland. I, I think Scrooge is like going off to like their ancestral home, and they find it populated uh, with, as I would learn later on throughout high school and college, like a bunch of sort of stock characters that show up frequently in Shakespearean works. So you've got the sort of like old crone slash witch characters and like a couple of Roman knights happen by every now and then. Uh, and then they eventually discover that there is a, um, there's an unri- unwritten or, or yet undiscovered work by um, the sort of duck verse analog of William Shakespeare called William Drakespeare. <laughs> this, is, this is high art people. Um, and the same reason why I, I thought her name was uh, Shoeb Azad until, um, grad school okay so because there's there's no one from the middle east in my high school uh new york okay yeah so and then they discovered this uh unwritten work called mcduck and after putting on a single a single performance of it uh discovered that's so terrible that it has to be buried again from sight Mm -hmm. i mean if you got to go with tv like diegetic shakespeare that's also Mm. crazy nonsense and I you do. Gotta, you got to go with the series finale of Oz, which is like a, an episode of television that sort of hangs like a shadow over my life, like every day. <laughs> like, <laughs> like I don't know if you have a picture <laughs> of it on your ceiling, Pete. Come on. Oh, well, that's true. I really should take that down. J.K. Simmons autographed it at Knife Point, at Shiv Point. No, um, <laughs> the Oz poster of Damocles. Yeah. No, in Oz, they decide for some reason that it's a good idea to have the the prisoners perform a production of Macbeth. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I think it's exactly. based on a true story. I've definitely heard of uh, oh, really? uh, prison productions of Shakespeare, sort of no, like, no, you no, know, as a thinking, constructive activity for, uh, the, for inmates. The, you're thinking of the prison production of Michael Jackson's thriller. I mean, there's that as well, but no, <laughs> it's been done in prisons. No, yeah, I, mean, I, th- I think there's actually, well, because earlier in Oz, it's presented as a very positive thing, like the prisoners doing theater. But in this one, they cast it all too well. Like, they cast all the characters in their analogous roles, oh, uh, and it, it's a little a on the nose. But the big mistake, the other, no, the other big mistake is, like, letting them use real knives. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's complicated pretty fast. That is actually, that's the same problem that my high school production of Macbeth had. <laughs> oh, the Scottish play. We're cursing this podcast left and right, people. We gotta really expunge some of these evil spirits. We get ourselves in trouble. Well maybe maybe I can do that. Um Okay. You know, if I yeah. uh, if I had to pick a movie, it would be Waiting for Guffman. I I think that Pete was onto something when he said that that, you know, despite the the kind of billions of dollars and the glitz uh that is generated by Broadway and the Tony Awards and things like this, most people experience theater at the grassroots, you know, as high school plays or as uh, you know, community theater. And Waiting for Guffman is the the just I think the perfect depiction of of community theater and also as a person who does you know theater for for the meager paycheck that it brings um i uh i I think that that's what my family is convinced i do for a living you know (laughs) you're like no i don't make a living at it (laughs) (laughs) sorry sorry so so they don't listen to the they don't listen to the podcast then no i have to design websites to actually make any money um (laughs) i uh yeah that it's you know um I just I there's a there's a number within the show within the show uh, that's about industry in Blaine, Missouri, uh, the town celebrating its sesquicentennial. That's the 150, and um, the lyrics to this it's about uh, how the stool business, the stools for sitting, not not stools for sampling. Um, the, <laughs> <laughs> The stool business uh, kind of grew in Blaine, and the lyrics are working, making, never stopping, never sleeping, working, making, (laughs) some for selling, some for keeping. And uh, it's one of the most brilliant uh, songs, I think, 
there's also mm-hmm. there's also nothing ever happens on Mars where the chorus goes boring, 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 <laughs> boring, boring, boring in a tritone, alternating in a tritone. But I, yeah. uh, but I, that's my runner-up. My my um, absolute favorite is uh, my favorite episode of The Simpsons from season four. It's called A Streetcar Named Marge, and uh, yes. Marge. Yes. Is- Marge Simpson, Marge Simpson gets involved in a community theater musical adaptation of A Streetcar Named Desire called O Streetcar, um, <laughs> named uh, uh, with um, John Lovitz uh, guesting as the director. Uh, and the, um, the, oh God, what, uh, it's actually, it's kind of sad uh, in retrospect uh, because of Hurricane Katrina, but the, uh, the opening, the lyrics to the, um, opening song are long before the Superdome where the saints of football play lived a city that the damned call home hear their hellish rondelay (laughs) New Orleans you know and this I mean I could quote the uh, I could quote the um, the lyrics from this this show forever and ever and ever. For I, I think I will. Uh, I am just a humble paper boy. No romance do I seek. I just wanted 40 cents for my delivery last week. Will this bewitching floozy seduce this humble newsy? Oh, what's a paper boy to do? That's Apu as the paper boy in, uh, in A Streetcar Named Marge. Anyway, it's, it's, um, it's very good. Uh, if only because we learned that, uh, that Ned Flanders played Blanche du- Dubois in his all-boys school production of A Streetcar Named Desire. <laughs> it, that's, that's also the first time that we learned that Ned Flanders is like completely ripped under his shirt, right? Totally ripped under his shirt. Yeah, he, yeah like, like he, he tears off his shirt in, in a moment of, of you know, uh, existential agony and like has this Stanley, giant yeah. – sig- yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, oh, yeah, and has these, these rippling washboard abs and these um, – yeah. giant pecs. Giant, pecs yeah. that would if you if you desired uh, peck smelling walnuts could crack walnuts with. Um, do you uh, does anyone have um, uh, you know uh, what honorable mentions in this category? Yeah, sure, definitely. I mean, one good it's a good movie. I would not describe it as my favorite by any stretch. High school, musical. but it does involve. Uh, no, not High School Musical. Uh, I feel like I'm going to have to answer no, not High School Musical a lot of times in the near future to questions. No, not High School Musical. Uh, 1999's Cradle Will Rock, which has Hank Azaria in it, who was in The Simpsons. Also has Bill, oh, Mar- yeah. Bill Murray in it and uh, John Turturro and a whole bunch of other great people. And, and Tenacious, Tenacious D, right? Yeah. Are they in that? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Jack oh, Black awesome. and Kyle Glass. They, 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 they do the, um, the human as puppet scene at the end. Oh, cool. I know it has, uh, you know, famed president from 24, Cherry Jones, uh, who played one of the yes. many incompetent chief executives in the uh, best television show ever made that never got past the exposition, ever. Because <laughs> um, <laughs> it's always explaining to you what's happening. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a pretty solid We don't show. have time for exposition! <laughs> no, you don't understand. Like, we have to get over there. Then we have to open that window. And if we don't open the window, I'm never going to find out the truth about my father. What's the deal with your father? You're never going to learn. You don't let anybody close to you, Jack. Like, I don't have time for this right now. And then, and then in like five minutes, three of those people are dead and they have to start all over again. Um, but yeah, no, it's consider, a- uh, If you consider dramaturgy as like a system of actions and objectives, though, if you think of like, you know, it's, it's a character trying to accomplish something and being thwarted in his attempts, um, I have to open that window over there is not the worst play that's ever been written <laughs> that's true that is actually quite active I've, if, I've seen many worse improv scenes if, if, yeah. you, if you consider drama to be a uh, an advertising vehicle for ford pickup trucks then then 24 is also an awesome um, <laughs> like it's it's a it's a it's a classic of the literature really then, then yeah then it is like uh it's it's the um the Citizen hamlet King. and uh and transformers <laughs> is like and transformers is the king lear right that's right because uh, they're like sort of rivals <laughs> oh my bumblebees are drowned <laughs> Awesome. But yeah, Cradle of Rock is a little bit pedantic. It's a little bit didactic. It tries to teach you about the Great Depression and the Federal Theater Project. And that kind of – it loses a bit of its human its humanity at that point. Um, I do like it, but it's just a little bit too sprawling. And everybody is a little bit too polished because it's sort of making its point uh, a little bit too much. Uh, it doesn't have this, this sort of beloved sloppiness that you see from like Hamlet 2 or Waiting for Guffman. Uh, and so that movie is fun. I like that movie. I actually had a first edition – of the script to the actual play Cradle Will Rock from uh, 1930 or whenever, um, where it was just dedicated to Bert, which is Bertolt Brecht, who appears like as a ghost in the show. Um, 
even though he's still alive, I think. Uh, and the other one I wanted to bring up is, of course, Shakespeare <laughs> enter, in Love. Enter, enter Bertolt Brecht wearing a sign saying Bertolt Brecht. Yeah, <laughs> Bertolt Brecht, who is not really a ghost. Exactly. The, the epic theater. He's really important. People should understand what he talked about. But yeah, and also, this year's yeah. at home, sound off with your favorite Caucasian uh, chalk circle reference in the comments, please. <laughs> awesome. But yeah, and I'd also, I'd also say Shakespeare in Love, which, I mean, what probably wasn't good enough to win the Oscar, uh, but it did. But um, and because we talked about that before, because it was like the first movie yeah. to have a modern Oscar campaign behind it. And it just sort of blindsided everybody. But it's actual, I like the way that it depicts the actors of the globe. Like when Ben Affleck is like blustering and trying to figure out how to perform his part. Like that's fun. I, I like that. Uh, I wish that there were more or better movies, which I'm sure exist, which just I haven't seen, uh, like portraying what it was like to act at the globe. That don't get caught up in these weird, nonsensical, like love story things that don't make any, that don't really bear out, right? Um, with Gwyneth Paltrow and Shakespeare. Because so Gwyneth Paltrow, Gwyneth Paltrow is a classy lady, and she doesn't stoop for commoners like Shakespeare. Although he wasn't a commoner, he was like middle class kind of guy. But he, he did buy a coat of arms for his father before his death. But Gwyneth, I mean, she dates the guy from Coldplay, so or yeah. married to as a kid. She'll she'll yeah. stoop it if you're good at um at karaoke though. Oh, that's true. That, Which that's is also generous. does that count? Like, does karaoke count as theater? <laughs> Because if so, the duets is the greatest movie ever made. <laughs> I'm not sure how those two things are connected, but they are. Um, duets is a spectacular road movie about karaoke with Huey Lewis in his finest dramatic role um, as Gwyneth Paltrow's dad, estranged dad. And she, yeah, she I, I it, it probably would count as a drama movie if not for the fact that it is Huey Lewis and by default must count as a Huey Lewis movie. Right, right, exactly. Right, that trumps everything. Mm-hmm. Any others that people have off the top of their heads? I mean, there's it sneaks in like it's in different parts of different yeah. shows. And my I'm, favorite, I'm, my favorite oh. television episodes is there's a great television episode the in sci-fi show Lex where they meet like a, tr- a space theater troupe. But there's all sorts of sci-fi stuff about theaters. It's not that there's, interesting. I mean, there's a great. Um, oh yeah, I mean, there are all kinds of episodes of uh, Star Trek: The Next Generation that have to do with yeah. theater. And I mean, you know, when you introduce the holodeck into storytelling, I think that it's a you know it's all theater. Um, there's a great episode of Party Down, the you know semi-improvised Showtime series that had uh, Adam Scott, who is now on that's his name, right? Who's now on Parks and Recreation, uh, as yeah, well as yeah. Jane Lynch, Martin Starr uh, from Freaks and Geeks, and um, Lizzie Kaplan. Yes, yeah, uh, as the girl of, of Cloverfield hey, fame. Can we go back to Star Trek for a second here? And because um, <laughs> it's yes, <laughs> did I have to ask? Right, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but my recollection of when they did. You know, various you know, perform Shakespeare and things like that on the holodeck. That was sort of like they just insert themselves into like that uh, sort of virtual reality scenario of them being Hamlet or whatnot, right? Did they? The question that I'm getting at here is: Did they perform it for other people? In other words, like if you're just like in a virtual reality simulation of Hamlet, is that still theater? Because like they didn't have like their mm-hmm. fellow officers and crew like you know like uh, sitting in the holodeck or perhaps like viewing in on them on the holodeck, right? That was their, sort of their own private experience. Yeah, I mean, I will. I'll speak out as I mean, maybe Matt has done this too, but I have performed in shows for no one, um, and they they definitely take on a very strange character. Well, um, explain. Well, <laughs> so work? I had a. I had a well, I had like an eleven thirty improv show that was scheduled to perform during uh, the ALCS in I think two thousand and seven when the Red Sox were up against the Cleveland Indians. Uh, and was, I hear that. I hear that uh, they take their sports pretty seriously in Boston. They do, in fact. And so nobody showed up to our show. And so, uh, and this group was already kind of on the ropes. I mean, we would stick around for a while, but it, this group had difficulty pulling uh, audiences sometimes. And so, and Matt saw us a couple times. Um, but this was an unexpected turbulence show. I, I loved it dearly, but it, you know, it was it was an early it was early work, and uh, we <laughs> sort of started doing a show, but then we started just deciding to do stand up sets for each other. So what we did is we turned <laughs> members of the cast into audience, and so people would go and sit down and watch the other members of the cast performing. I guess it was we were pretty uncomfortable with the idea of doing the show for literally no one watching. So we almost we sort of like relied on that division, that dialectic that's in our heads. Um, well, dichotomy, rather. There is a dialectic there, but it's a dichotomy, too. And it split ourselves up and made some of ourselves the audience. And I feel like we w- would have done that, too, 
if we hadn't even done stand-up, where the people who are on the sides watching the, the scenes would become the audience. Um, there's such a strong tendency to want to set that up. But I guess it, you could have a performative relationship with the audience where there's no audience and it's just performers. I mean, that's sort of what a lot of rituals are, right? And, like, when people are chanting along with stuff and, like, when you're getting, like, beaten in Boy Scouting as a hazing ritual or something and everybody is, like, in it and nobody is really the audience. Tell us more about it. Or when, uh, you know, the freaks are all saying, goobble gobble, goobble gobble, one of us, one of us. Anyone? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Todd Browning in the 1920s. Never mind. Um, <laughs> the, uh, yeah, I mean, that's, isn't that like, and I think a lot of interesting theater, you know, like, uh, you know, real theater as well, theater, uh, kind of blurs the line between audience <laughs> and participant. Uh, yeah, you know what I mean. Uh, that that is that that seems to be a characteristic of of exciting work that's being done, um, that's being done now. Like the uh, oh, uh, Les Frères Corbusier, a, uh, a theater troupe that kind of was started by some people we went to school with uh, in college, and that now you know whose whose main guy Alex Timber has become the director of Bloody Bloody Andrew Jackson and the Pee Wee Herman live show that was on Broadway and stuff like this. They did a, a recreation of a Hell House uh, at St. Anne's Warehouse in, in, um, in Brooklyn. And, uh, you know, it's, it was this, you know what Hell Houses are, yeah? They're these uh, sort of fundamentalist Christian um, Halloween, alternative Halloween sort of half entertainment, half educational tools where... Uh, Edutainment. Are, yeah, you're, you're led around from living tableau to living tableau of... Um, you know, I don't know, uh, people having sex and, like, a gory abortion and, like, the, I don't know, a, a, like, a terrifying homunculus is born um, at the abortion uh, inexplicably. And, it you know, it comes around and, and uh, kills the, the woman wow. who, was, who was, like, uh, what, uh, who was sinful enough to, to allow herself to undergo such a sinful kind of thing. And I'm uh, just thinking that, uh, that, that fundamental Christians have to have pretty awesome production values. It was, like yeah, to, I mean, to, to pull off birthing a homunculus, a murderous homunculus at that. <laughs> like either they have really great production values or access to many midgets. Had little people. Let's be nice. I feel like Peter Dinklage is redeeming his class of folks in his wonderful Game of Thrones performances. <laughs> <laughs> and his uh, yeah. yeah, he's pretty good. I, I, I don't love his accent. I don't love his dialect work, I have to say. But uh, <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. <laughs> do, you, do you think he's he's got an inauthentic Westeros accent? <laughs> yes, yeah, when I go absolutely. to Westeros, when I whenever I go to Casterly Rock, I and then people never talk like that. I don't understand what they're saying. First of all, so. <laughs> I'm like, hey, what's up? I just came with all these people. We've got this monkey on this flag. Uh, it's my banner. Yo, I'm There's on the second one now. Second book. Hey, you know, I actually Lannister, gave up on Len- not reading books. What? Yeah, a Lannister always uh, pays his debts, Pete. Unless he's an actor, in which case he can't afford it. I, uh, uh, but, he's like an actor out on loan. Yeah, exactly. And, um, you learn you learn in book four uh, of uh, of the Song of Ice and Fire series that um, that uh, this isn't a spoiler, right? You're not spoiling anything. No, 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 no. This is not. This is uh, not. A, this is not really a spoiler. Or at least it's not okay. really consequential to the to the plot of the book. But you learn that um, that in the city of Bravos. In the uh, you know the seafaring city of Bravos, they uh, right. the mummers, which is you know George R R's word for actors, uh, do not do as they do in Westeros, where they perform improvised dumb shows more or less, and a kind of, you know a kind of body pantomime uh, yeah. th- that is satirical. Um, but they actually write down the words that they say in, uh, in the city <laughs> of Bravos and perform uh, say, they perform texts that are the same every night. Uh, you learned this in, in A Feast for Crows. And wow. Hey, mm. July. I heard that one digresses from the race storyline. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you yeah. talked about fundamentalist Christian theater. There's those, they, they depict that ma- massive uh, Mormon theatrical display in one of the episodes of Big Love, right? Where they have that giant thing that happens in, what, upstate New York or wherever it is? Do you guys know what I'm talking about? Do you guys ever watch Big I stopped watching Big Love after a little while, but he, they, they take the family to go see this giant performance of the, and of course, Book of Mormon is the big musical that's happening right now, so I guess it's, there's a related... Is it like a, like a Mormon passion play, Pete? Is it just a, like a revisitation of the religious texts? Well, it's, not, I mean, it's, it's not really a, a passion play. I guess it's not a passion, yeah, yeah, it's... 
more of like a morality tale yeah right? here's the here's the oh. thing here's the thing about religion and theater i mean religion has a problem which is that if you're going to say that a certain body of scripture or a certain um series of events is authoritative morally and you know and spiritually um you need a way for the people who are living now to sort of participate in those events and to kind of be a part of them uh yeah. and you so you have to you have to kind of you have to do some sort of reenactment, you know, uh, in order for the people who are alive now to be a part of what happened, you know, hundreds and thousands of years ago. So, uh, you know, hence, like, the, the, the Catholic Mass is a reenactment. It's a, you know, it, um, among other things. There are other things that go on also. But, like, the centerpiece of it is a reenactment of the Last Supper story, Um mm-hmm. Which just Dave had a great dream about the Last Supper. I won't steal your thought. Oh yeah. I, I mean, if you, want, if you want me to tell this dream, I'm, I'm happy to do I it. Do. I do. Like one, yeah. one of the many illustrations that my subconscious is like way wittier and funnier than my conscious will ever be. But but finish your thing first, man. Um, yeah, and so like the the thing about like Hell Houses or oh, and I was saying that like uh, my point about Hell Houses was Le Frere did the did a Hell House in New York, and it was this kind of it was this kind of participatory thing because you were you're being invited to like step into the role of these fundamentalist Christians who were observing the hell house you know what I mean and like uh, you know and the the idea of irony and the idea of how much you were complicit or how much you were participating was actually kind of explicitly the subject of that uh, of that piece and so it was the point I was trying to make <laughs> so many so many decades ago was about uh, uh, complicity and participation uh, of an audience in theater but uh, Dave tell us your dream that you had about Jesus Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, I've had many dreams about Jesus, but not all of them are appropriate for this podcast. Um, yeah, so I, I had a dream whose premise, or for which the premise um, you know, is, is true, which is that the, the Bible as it exists in its current form has been you know, massively edited from longer text or sort of less coherent or less uh, um, you know, inter- interwoven texts over time. And that what I was actually watching my dream was effectively the director's cut of the last <laughs> Like this. Nice. Before we had to trim it down for time, this is what the Last Supper looked like. And so Jesus got up and, you know, he held up a matzo and he's like, uh, this is my body, blah, blah, blah. He holds up the wine, you know, this is my blood. And then he just keeps on going. He holds up some coffee filters. He's like, these are my kidneys. Um, he holds up like a, uh, like, like a, like a, a, a cafeteria woman's hairnet. And he's like, you know, this is my brain. And like, as he's elaborating, it becomes clear that, that, you know, he knows he's going to die. And what he wants is for his apostles to construct him again out of these parts, uh, following his death so that he can take vengeance on those who killed him. <laughs> They're going to build a giant, a murderous Jesus bot that will help avenge his death. Um, and it was, it's the greatest dream I've ever had. And, this is, and this is, is kind of akin to like, I, I think we've talked about it before maybe, but I, I'm sure everyone has had this idea, you know, zombie Jesus, right? On the third day, oh, he yeah. was again hungry for brains. Hungry for brains, yeah, mm-hmm. and, and, which is a trope in Futurama. You know, I, uh, mm-hmm. Farnsworth frequently is heard to say, "Sweet zombie Jesus," um, mm-hmm. you know. which is also a playoff. Great Caesar's ghost Great from the Caesar. old Superman television show. It's true. Right? It's like, yeah, it's like, oh, historical figure and spiritual entity, sort of. Oh, I always thought it was the salad. Yeah, <laughs> it makes so much more sense. Oh man. Great Waldorf's ghost. <laughs> so yeah. Well, hey guys, this has been a great this has been a great summer movie preview episode. <laughs> <laughs> For preview yeah. summer, I was about to I was about to start talking about the Battle of Shaker Heights, where Sheila young Sheila Boot plays a war reenactor. But no, I won't do that. <laughs> you guys, you go ahead. Let's like, you know. Uh, Okay, well let's let's do it. Mark, uh, Super Eight release this weekend. Mark, you saw Super Eight. You want to do five minutes on Super Eight? I'll do many minutes on Super 8, but if you'll constrict me to 5, I'll do 5. No. <laughs> so Super 8, I think the, the critical consensus on it was that it's, it's a lot of fun. It's certainly better than most, uh, you know, sort of tentpole summer blockbuster movies and that it's sort of very ambitious and has a lot of heart to it. And it absolutely does. You know, it is absolutely ambitious and it has a lot of heart in that, like, the young, ch- the young people, uh, children, 
when well, maybe the you know young teenagers that are the central characters in are in it uh, that that story is executed extremely well you really em- empathize with the characters all this sort of stuff um uh, and then sort of there's this sort of awkward monster slash alien story which has a little bit of et but you know a little bit of cloverfield as well which is uh not executed nearly as well as the uh, emotional scenes with the interactions with the with the teenagers and uh so that leaves you know, you know, that left me at least coming out of it being like, you know, I felt that, that was a lot Char- of fun. I felt that way about Sharktopus, that the monster <laughs> stuff was, was not nearly as well executed as the emotional scenes yeah. with the teenagers. <laughs> the, the original Sharktopus or Sharktopus versus Mega Shark? No, that's Mega Shark versus Giant Octopus, which oh. is different. Shark, it's Mega Shark vs. Giant Octopus is a totally different genre of film. It, it, is, it, 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 it is the Merry Wives of Windsor to Shark Vs. <laughs> uh, yeah, anyway, oh, so, so anyway, uh, you know, I, I came out of it feeling a little bit conflicted, you know, thinking that it was, it was fun and that this part of the movie was really great, but this other part of it was uh, not particularly well executed. And uh, I, I don't know if you know, some of this can be traced back to other J.J. Abrams works, particularly Lost, and about the way that various mysterious creatures are introduced, like smoke monsters and polar bears, and then not particularly well explained. I've heard bits and pieces of that through uh, mostly Shane's coverage of Lost uh, back when it was on the air, but again, I I didn't watch Lost, and I don't, you know, and I can't really sort of, like, you know, create, like, a a J.J. Abrams, uh, you know, continuum about, you know, how how he treats monsters. So what I actually want to talk about... um, and I alluded to this earlier when we were talking about, you know, uh, creative works within creative works is uh, this part of Super 8, which is the the movie that is shot on Super 8 that the kids are are filming while the rest of the movie goes on. And uh, a few people have have made this observation and I will repeat it, uh, not necessarily as my own, but, you know, what I've called from other movie reviews is that what they're making is a really low rent zombie movie. Right. Low rent, yet at the same time, like it turns out to be, you know, effective and, you know, in kind of a minimal, minimal kind of way um, in, in that. So they're, they're you know, the, the kids are working on the zombie movie together and, you know, the rest of the movie happens and, you know, the E.T. phones home, blah, blah, blah. And at the end, after the after after the movie ends and the credits are rolling, they show what this movie uh, was that the kids were working on in, you know, in its entirety. And it's exactly what you expected to be. It's, you know, what would happen if kids got a video camera and made a zombie movie together. But, and, not, a, but not a video camera, a 8mm uh, film camera. Sure, 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 sure. sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, but what the, the critics are pointing out, basically, is that, you know, that very stripped-down, raw, and, you know, real um, you know, creative work that comes out and what we see at the end credits is in some ways in stark contrast to the incredibly... Uh, ambitious, overly ambitious, and sprawling, and, and you know, uh, you know, not entirely cohesive uh, monument to creativity that J.J. Abrams has created for himself. So, a couple of questions that come out of this, I want to ask you guys: Is that what is this, why is it? So, just to outline Super Eight, you know, it's all about you know this train train crashes in a small uh, Ohio town, and uh, there's an alien on the loose, and really crazy stuff happens. And but it turns out the alien is misunderstood and just wants to go home. Uh, and without spoiling it, that's sort of where I'll leave it at that. And what is the um, what is the significance then of the of them shooting a, zo- a zombie movie? It's not fi- quite fully explained why it's a zombie movie, not some other creature movie. Um, you know, in the backdrop of this uh, other story going on. And the second is like, you know, what about this concept of you know the sort of the show within the show, right? Like, what is it that makes that work sometimes? You know, like what I mentioned before with Bullets Over Broadway. And what is it that, you know, when does that happen where it feels sort of tacked on or not exactly natural? So a couple of things out there I'm going to leave. I'm going to throw it to the rest of the panel. Well, I, I want to use this as another example of a common theme for me on these podcasts, which is that James Joyce ruined everything. <laughs> here, here, James, go, go, go on. Especially his marriage <laughs> and no, his he, liver. He yeah. loved his wife. I love his. Uh, he said something about his wife once, which was uh, you know he was asked about his special bond with his wife, and and his response was, "I could smell her fart in a room of farts," and that that struck oh. me as one of the <laughs> one of the truest ex- one of the truest expressions of love that I've ever heard. In my life. Yeah, the Irish put that on their currency for a while, right? <laughs> Uh, the um, 
uh, which is that when when art becomes a fit topic for art, you know, uh, and not just in a way. I mean, I suppose that uh, in a way, all art is about art in a way. But uh, <laughs> right. You know, uh, but when it's when when artists get together and say, "Hey, you know what's fascinating us?" Um, they uh, never mind that, that that is the premise that this podcast is is predicated. Yeah, I was about to say they, they start a website called Overthinking. Yeah, right? Is that what happens? <laughs> that happens. Um, you know, uh, that's that's the beginning of the whole the whole problem in you know 1921 or two with the pub- publication of Ulysses in the Wasteland. It all went downhill from there. So the you know the idea that the kind of the self-reflexivity of the film within a film is, uh, you know, I don't know. I think it's just a lazy way a lot of the time. I'm Now I sound like Belinky. It's lazy writing, but it 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 so often becomes a mouthpiece um, for something that the author wants to say that is not a narrative, that is to say a, not a work of storytelling about the dramatic actions of a group of interesting characters. Um, and uh, in that, it sort of lessens whatever it, you know, whatever larger framework it well, happens to be dropped into. Well, but, it, you know, it is, it is a great way to... Um to sort of you know, discuss or, or introduce themes or ideas um, through contrapuntal writing, right? It, it, you can have sort of parallels between the show within a show and the sort of major show, um, but then, you know, have these stark differences between the two of them somehow elucidate some of the, the emotional content of what's going on. And, you know, the most obvious examples that come to my mind are um, in Twin Peaks. Uh, they watch the this show called um, like Surrender to Romance or something like that, and you, you see like thirty seconds of this every now and then. You know, all the housewives love this show, and what's going on in the show is almost directly what's happening in, in Twin Peaks. This is the first season before it gets all spiritual and red lodgy and stuff. Uh, and and there's a similar kind of soap opera that House watches on House MD. Sure, um, it's kind of it's kind of like right? uh, the the role of the Kick Puncher franchise in Community. His okay, punches yeah, are like kicks. Maybe. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, yeah, but but you know you can obviously see the parallels between the two, and then in the stark differences, and in you know a, a character from either iteration of the show, either the show or the show within the show, their reactions to those differences tells you something about you know the authorial intent, or um, tells you something about you know what you as a viewer might learn about them as characters. Also, I'll point out that if it hadn't been for all the navel-gazing that happened in the 20s, we wouldn't have had the Dadaist movement, which is, I think we all agree, the greatest movement in the history of art. Mm, the Dadaist right. movement? Yeah, of course. Are you, why, are you so, why are you so high on the Dadaists? I'm a big urinal enthusiast, so, <laughs> you know, it's really, it, that's, that was go time for urinals as art. I feel like if you're a urinal enthusiast, though, like Dada urinal art doesn't work for you, right? Because then you're like, this urinal is awesome, and it's not having its like subversive quality of trying to shatter your sort of expectations. Well, that's a very that's a very hipster urinal enthusiast <laughs> way of looking at it. You know, I'm just happy to get our voice out there. I'm oh, using so sort of a political right thing. now. Yeah, uh, yeah. You're, you're, is that why you're echoing a little bit, or is because you're inside of a urinal? Is that... That's why I seem so relieved. <laughs> Excellent, awesome. Yeah. That's spectacular. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I guess with with depictions. So you were saying that depictions of art uh, are have something that that started or like picked up steam at a particular point in the twentieth century. And is it is it because sort of mass media and hyper reality have kind of taken over people's experience of the world? It's like that was one of the things that is happening here. They're like uh, you know that, that idea of who is it? Who's the the hyper reality? I forget whose idea that is, but I I've quoted a lot because it has a lot to do with a lot of the things we talk about and overthinking it. Like when people like you know read fan fiction and are like, oh my god, I want to be Naruto so bad. Um, like that, that's like that you're not in reality. Um, or or when people hear like, oh wow, like you know you know Sarah Palin ate a bunch of pancakes and talked about our freedom and how we're so so special as a as a culture, and like none of this has anything to do with anything happening in your real life it's like a performance that's been put on by somebody to convince you that the world works in a certain way (laughs) excuse me um so you're divorced from and of course what is real what is unreal you know is it turtles all the way down like that sort of thing like is there something that isn't this hyper reality but there's this sort of thing like thinking that comes up in the 20th century like nothing that you experience is actually real anymore like it's all been you know designed or created or or framed in such a way that that it's it's to create for you the impression of a reality um, and in that sense, things that are about art are, are a little bit more honest than things that aren't, because if you're not experiencing any actual reality, 
uh, and I still sort of take issue with the idea of natural, actual reality. But if you're not experiencing any of it, then stuff about it isn't going to – you're not going to identify with it. You're going to have no idea whether it's real or not, and it's not really going to be what it purports to be. Whereas at least something that says it's about art can, can be about something that exists in your life, uh, right? Um, I don't know. Am I, I will bit- say that uh, you know, to that point, um, not surprisingly, a movie called Super 8 has a, you know, a, the, the recorded moving picture – that is to say, video um, plays a big part in the plot of the movie. Or film, uh, right? The, film, sure. Yeah. They, they see films. They, stay, they, they watch you know, pre-recorded uh, you know, images. Uh, it played back in a couple of very important instances, and it, play, and it, it really uh, – they are central uh, points in the plot. Okay, and how so? Do you think that – is it presented as like – because I, th- I think that – Sometimes when they show kids watching movies, like in that last action hero, for example, is a great example of this. And a, a movie that's actually really on point with what we're talking about. And a movie that wouldn't exist if not for James Joyce. So one of the ways that James Joyce has ruined the world is by <laughs> creating Last Action Hero. Um, last Action Hero is a movie where a kid is watching it, an Arnold Schwarzenegger action movie, and Arnold Schwarzenegger like becomes real. Right. And the kid like travels around with Arnold Schwarzenegger, like doing action movie type things. And it's a, it's a kind of a bit of a meta deconstruction of the action movie genre but it's not very biting it's it's kind of like a kid movie and i think part of it is that um the experiences the kids have with art because they're being made by artists are often romanticized as sort of formative experiences about who they are which further divorces them from their sort of you know pre-artistic selves although this is almost like a sort of nietzschean way of talking because we're sort of like yeah the system has come along and made us all soft and made us weak from our reality right like before art we were all better like before our movies were about movies they were better like before the priests came along and gave us all of our silly ideas like we we lived as true people with a will to power like before this before that way back in the day everything worked and i'm always a little bit skeptical about that so that's definitely not what super is trying to do surprise okay, spoiler so it, right? so it's not it's not trying to like show these kids with their movies as this sort of like idealized way that the kids are introduced to a world that the movie makers no no if anything super eight is about the power of the moving image right okay so it, there's two things that happen i can pretty much say that without spoiling one is like this emotional moment where like you know this the 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 main character is watching uh, film recorded of his late mother and yeah. another one is where key exposition of the true nature of the beast that is to say the nature of the alien that is wreaking havoc all across the city uh that exposition is revealed th- again through pre-recorded film footage and through pre-recorded audio as well so you know that, that's you know when you talk about what is this nietzschean thing about um you know uh, that sort of the corrupting nature of art and sort of doesn't allow us to appreciate reality no the what jj abrams is saying that this is our reality um and i know there could have been sort of an interesting way to take this where you know that they are deceived by that but that's not what the movie is trying to do right 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 well it's, it's all sort of a. it sounds very kind of kino eye versus hitchcock right I mean, which, uh, can, can you unpack that? <laughs> it's like the the who's fly. It's one of the Russian, like the early Russian filmmakers, like posits the kino eye. Is that what it is? It's fair. Uh, it is Vertov with the kino eye. Like the, the idea that you know the camera is capturing reality, whether or not the filmmakers uh, want it to. That the camera, owing to the fact that it is an unemotional, um, unthinking machine whose sole purpose is to just take light and make images from it. Um, you know, will produce a version of reality that cannot be colored by human thought the way what the humans intended to be is. And and Hitchcock, you know, was, uh, I mean, a contemporary of Veritas originally and is sort of a scholar and a fan of his works and really loved kind of twisting this around um, to make incredibly deceptive moments out of the moments that you think are, uh, are the most revelatory. Um, you know, Psycho has a great moment in this where the camera sort of pans up to the top of the staircase as you see uh, what you later learn to be Norman Bates dressed as his mother, but which at the time you think is his mother, sort of climbing the staircase and they're engaged in a conversation Spoiler between alert. the two of them. Yeah. Sorry, sorry, sorry. But the whole thing is like that is a camera angle from which in any other movie uh, you would expect to be able to see everything. You have a directly overhead shot. There's basically like, you know, straight up lighting on the whole thing. There, there's nothing that would tell your brain, oh, information is being hidden from you in this, at, at this time. And yet, um, the very fact that he's posed it that way leads you to trust what your eyes have been telling you, um, which is, in fact, a lie. You know, so, so there's this sort of back and forth um, you know, in, in the viewer's mind as to you know, what to believe and what not to believe, both between like, the diegetic and the non-diegetic as well. So, 
so I don't know. I mean, I could I could see. I mean, a- Abrams is also kind of a big fan of those old, you know, both the old Russian art house movies and the old Hitchcock horror films. So, and I could see him going for something like that. But I don't know. You know, before we started this podcast, I was, you know, not necessarily going to recommend that everybody else run out and go see this. But then when we talk about this one particular thing, uh, I really do. I do wish that that you guys had had, had seen this so that we could have this, you know, more of an in-depth conversation about the nature of film and, you know, how what's what is J.J. Abrams trying to say about it? in this context uh i think there's there's really there's something going on there i don't know if it's well executed and it's perhaps you know by and large uh distracted you are distracted from that point that he's trying to make by the rest of the noise and the random tank battle that happens in the neighborhood as well again not to spoil things but <laughs> there's there's a lot of noise going on here again i guess maybe not surprising for a jj abrams thing but he's trying so hard right there's something really interesting that i think he's trying to say about the nature of the motion picture and the creative process around making it and how that affects our realities and our standing of our world but I can't quite fully wrap my mind around it. Um, and uh, maybe, the, I don't know, maybe the commenters who, who have seen this can start to unpack this. It's, it's like so approaching the sort of the, the, the profound deep statements that we were able to uncover from Inception, right? About how, uh, you know, we sort of figured out that that was a metaphor for, for, for the process of movie making. But it's not quite there. And the fact that sort of like, you know, me rambling about it, I can't quite tease it out. Maybe is, is a sign right there that Abrams wasn't fully successful in doing that, which I think he was trying to do. But then again, I'm not quite entirely sure. Polar bear, smoke monsters, God. <laughs> I mean, are, are movies um, about filmmaking that are, that are sort of metaphorically about filmmaking, you know, things that really glorify the process of making movies? Aren't they going to kind of miss the mark with most of the audience anyway, in that we don't make movies, with the exception of Rather, um, I guess sometimes Pete, you do the 24-hour film thing. Yeah. You know, like, I, I mean, I certainly, I've never made a movie on a big Hollywood lot. I've never been involved in their production. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, I mean, it doesn't really speak to me on a basic level. It just seems like another attempt for them to sort of reinforce the kind of... Um, uh, fantasy that 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 the general public treats movies with anyway this sort of you know idealized angelic view of of the people that make our dreams for us right um, yeah but those people are their bosses right so that's they have an extra incentive to make that movie yeah it's going to get the movie greenlit all that faster right yeah exactly <laughs> this story is about a brilliant movie producer who's really I'm sexually like, attractive and like everybody fine. loves yeah <laughs> I'm seeing Matt Damon as the lead. <laughs> Except um, it would be, I it would be more the, the movie producers pitching the movie, and it would be like, this, this story is about a brilliant executive at Comcast who's very sexy, and everyone <laughs> loves him so much. And he gets to be on the Enterprise with Captain Kirk. And they go, and they, they're like, oh, you, you oh no, we can't solve this problem. Why don't you come up with some great solutions on PowerPoint? And... Uh, Oh, never mind. <laughs> um, I was just—I was trying to think how, like, the line between this sort of thing is very different from from you know self, putting self in the story fan fiction, right? Like the sort of glorification of the fictional character that you think that you are. Which um, uh, is which is kind of funny. But yeah, I mean, I don't. Yeah, I don't mean. Well, once Stephen W. Oh, Hawking does that, you know. Uh, no, no, go ahead, go ahead. I don't mean to get all uh, these effing teenagers on you guys, but we've we've talked on that podcast about um, uh, one of the you know the um, seminal text for understanding. How uh, filmmaking is depicted uh, on screen is Gossip Girl, and and some of their <laughs> some yeah. If you're a hammer, every problem is a nail, right? Most seminal thing ever is Gossip. Is some well, it is it is seminal in that they do have a lot. Never mind the. Um, <laughs> In that they go to seminary. At the end of Gossip Girl, they all become exactly. priests. It is a vesicle for seminal. <laughs> let's let's probe this idea deeper, shall we? Yes, absolutely. It is like two cavernous bodies, mm. two uh, almost corpora cavernosa, if you will, that become engorged mm. with ideas. Um, but Matt, would you say that there's like a vast difference between that and some of the other works that resemble it? Is there, slack, is there a sarlacc pit vagina? Is that... <laughs> anyway, we can interrupt you so much. Sorry, they, you... they, uh, they show people Skyping one another, right? And, uh, and the, like, 
it's very it's very interesting how these things are shot because once you it, w- once you introduce cameras into an exchange between two people um like are you seeing what the cameras are seeing are you are you watching the people operating the camera are you you know what i mean are you watching the people being shot by the camera but not from the camera's point of view is there someone just outside the range of the camera and the kind of the limited perspective of the camera comes into play um you know it's it's honest to god it's one of the smarter um kind of you know uh ways of tackling the problem that that i've seen <laughs> um, and uh yeah there is a there is a vast difference between it and uh and anything else and i think that sometimes when movies show people making movies so when i was thinking about different scenes i like that are kind of uh about the making of performance art. One scene that really occurs to me as one of my favorites is from the movie The Rocketeer, right? Where uh, Neville Sinclair, the uh, dashing movie star slash villain of the movie, um, is he's, he's modeled after Errol Flynn in a lot of ways. And he's making like a medieval action swashbuckling picture. Are and you saying this... that Errol Flynn was a Nazi, Pete? Uh, yeah, I think so. Actually, oh. yes, <laughs> I think he was, right? Yeah, yeah. Was that's like, yeah. <laughs> I, well, I mean, I'm not going to... Wikipedia. He, he, he wasn't the way that Lindbergh was, right? I mean, this is pre-World War II, where as far as they knew, it was just like a political movement that was really effective at turning a country's economy around, and not so much at the vast murder of people. Um, yeah, I mean, there's, there's, there are um, now that I've had the time to Wikipedia him, which I need to do before I level any serious accusation that someone <laughs> dead, um, There are alleged accusations in a sort of uh, scandalous tell-all book from 1980 that he was a fascist sympathizer who spied for the Nazis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm seeing that on Wikipedia. Yeah, yeah. Now that we all have share this knowledge that was put on Wikipedia by somebody, well, there's yeah, a lot I, of numbers. That, next to the that I just edited into Wikipedia to be clear. Oh well, thank you. I appreciate that. Is Kennedy is DJ Kennedy still a member of the Kennedy clan? That's right. But, uh, yeah, exactly. So all these but citations that, point to overthinking.com, right? Yeah, exactly. Ah, circular reference. I love it. Yeah. So there's a uh, so there's a scene where he's he's like uh, he's encountering a woman and he drinks a glass of wine and the woman says, "Oh, like my prince, what that you would drink of these lips as deeply, right?" And they just like do that line over and over again because it's like an awful awkward line and she can never say right. And it, it's like uh, and he, she never gets it. And you see like this sort of flash of anger across his face. Um, but it's really cool because the thing that makes it cool is that it's the whole movie set is is so sort of splendid with all of the different character people. In costume and the big fancy uh, sets, and it also kind of captures like the sort of reality of a Robin Hood movie, which doesn't really exist anywhere. With like the breakaway chandelier that people are swinging on, and like you know that table that gets cut in half, and all this other stuff, which never really existed in reality ever. Um, and so, in that sense. It's it's not nostalgia. I mean, it's sort of nostalgic, but it's like not just depicting movies because we think movies are cool. It's also depicting a specific sort of movie that isn't really made so much anymore, um, and, and sort of identifying that those movies, now that we have a certain distance from them, become things that are interesting to talk about and think about. Um, I guess m- movies that are in the present are too present to imagine, right? Like, uh, like it's it's sort of too weird to talk about the movies that people are making now. But if you look back at movies that Maple made in the past, you identify the things that are different about them. It gives you a way of talking about them that isn't this sort of like self-serving. Um, I don't even want to say self-serving because that's a terrible accusation level against any art. Oh, it's self-indulgent. Oh, it's self-serving. Yeah, whatever. You know, I'm not doing it for you. You know, like like you know, that's that's it's just such a backhanded way of ins- of insulting something. But I don't know. Maybe it's Deb Margolin talking and not me. But um, <laughs> and anyway. I, I think I think I was I was more going for um, a specific a specific subset of movies about movies that I see as being kind of self-indulgent. Um, no, you know, I, I agree with you. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, where like you know, I don't think singing in the rain, for instance, is self-indulgent. I, I think it has a very kind of ribald way of looking at itself, and and in fact, a very dishonest portrayal of Hollywood in the process. Right. Um, but it's a lot of fun to watch, and I think it, it can brings the audience in uh, to join them in a way that you know a lot of other movies about movies don't. Yeah. Um, and then you've got things like Living in Oblivion or What Just Happened, um, which which are so sardonic in their view of the movie industry that it's easy for you know even a, a neophyte to sort of get caught up in it and and you know hate the movie executives as much as they're expecting to. But yeah. Great. So when well, do we start our uh, summer what, movie preview? It's time to move on to the other movie uh, re- that released this weekend, Judy Moody and the Not Bummer Summer. 
Oh man, did I see that thing three times? <laughs> Let me tell you, p- false advertising. That was one bummer summer. That's for- <laughs> I, I, I hope I get quoted by her deadly enemies. We're like trying to, like, as if this is a real person. And, uh, like, and like, you know, honestly, Judy, not so moody. <laughs> Is she played by Mad Eye Moody? Is she like uh, she is she like a giant one eyed Scotsman? Because that would be awesome. Uh, we're we're up to date. We're exactly up to date with the summer movie preview, <laughs> which is actually it's not so much of a summer movie preview now as a summer movie view. <laughs> you know, but we'll uh, we'll move on to the next one next time, maybe or something else. I like that we spent most of our time talking about theater. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> if you have anything that you want to say about the Tony Awards, about um, <laughs> you know you do, we know you do about movies for life, about movies about theater, about uh, movies about. Uh, movies. Um, if you have anything you want to say, you can uh, leave a comment on the show notes uh, on the website. You could also call 203-285-6401, but you'd be kind of an idiot to do that. I, I, I'm just saying because we never really play those. But we promise we promise a uh, listener feedback show before the end of the 2011 calendar year. You can also email us at podcast at overthinkingit.com and we have some good we have some good emails, so we really should do maybe we should do a whole separate podcast that's just listener feedback because um, we never seem to get to it on this one. Uh, also, uh, in case you haven't, in case you haven't heard, it's out the uh, the the overview of Ghostbusters Woo! two featuring uh, featuring famed film composer Bear McCreary uh, and Pete Fenzel and me uh, is out, and people seem to like it. The comments uh, the comments on the post on overthinking it are good. So uh, if you are interested in movies, in Ghostbusters, in ghosts, in ghost busting, uh, in proton packs, in crossing the streams in... Uh, Who are they going to call, Matt? Yeah, well, they're going to call uh, <laughs> overthinkingit.com slash store and uh, uh-huh. go get the overview for Ghostbusters 2, our alternative commentary. You need your own copy of Ghostbusters 2, but you can listen to, uh, you can listen to track, the track even without it, and it will be marginally entertaining. Um, so we, uh, you, you can go do that. I, ho- I hope you will. It's, uh, it's a really good one, and uh, leave a comment there if you like it. Also, hey, I haven't asked people to rate us on iTunes in a while. If you haven't rated this podcast on iTunes or you haven't done it recently, uh, go to the podcast page on iTunes for the Overthinking It podcast, if you would be so kind, and rate us. And if you give us a good rating, that would be good. That's the best way uh, we have of surfacing in the, uh, in the listings, and that uh, in turn lets other people know about the show. And we will be very grateful um, for that. Until then, uh, visit us on the web at www.overthinkingit.com where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It, it, it probably, probably doesn't, doesn't, doesn't deserve. 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 Oh, you're so funny with your deserve. for your mama and push (laughs) that's a commercial for boot camp it's a reality (laughs) show save the drama for your mama and push yeah i remember that yeah it's like the it's like the reality show equivalent of his father is the district attorney (laughs) (laughs) yeah can 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 a tv uh can a tv commercial have a ghost ship moment (laughs) <laughs> that's why I use pine salt. Oh! <laughs> my God! Oh. My armpits smell better! I was wondering why this kid is playing soccer in the kitchen. That didn't make sense. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, most, I guess most commercials ghost ship moments are you have a failed marriage moments. <laughs> like, you can't advertise anything without, like, quietly thinking to yourself, why are these people still together? Yeah. It's no, kind of like, I mean like it's kind of like our website. Yeah, that's true. <laughs>